That is such a powerful word for us to begin our message with this morning. There's an old expression, out of sight, out of mind. The suffering church is kind of out of sight for the most part. And it's easy to forget that half of our spiritual family around the world is not sitting like we are in comfort. No fear of being thrown into prison because we simply went to church. And so it's a powerful message to be reminded about. John chapter 21 is where I invite you to turn if you have your Bibles with you. And it's where we're looking at this uh, subject of Christ designed for discipleship. And we're going to look at just two verses this morning out of that chapter, uh, verses 18 and verse 19. The two symbols that we see on the screen that have already been alluded to are the hook and the crook. It was actually John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, that attributed in the first person in writing that this is where that expression began. The hook represents the fishermen, and everything in John 21 is related around fishermen and the Sea of Galilee and catching fish. And the crook represents the shepherd, and we know that our Lord Jesus' grave a strong word to Peter, especially about shepherding his sheep. So we say the hook represents evangelism. And even though these were fishermen by trade, remember Jesus had said three, three and a half years earlier, follow me, leave your fishing business behind because I'm going to make you to be fishers of men. And then last week we saw the, the crook, the sense of shepherding in Christ questioning and commissioning of Simon Peter. If you want to be a growing disciple, and it's got to begin with desire. If any man is willing to do my will, he says, let him take up the cross. There's got to be a desire to say, yes, I want to be a growing disciple. If that is true, then you must be involved in the hook and the crook. You must be involved in evangelism, and you must be involved in shepherding. If you are not, you will not be a growing disciple. Now, one of the burdens I feel every time I step up here in this series is that sometimes people can misunderstand what I'm saying and thinking what I'm saying pertains to the disciple who already knows Christ is something that I maybe as an unbeliever here this morning or watching online think I must do these things in order to merit salvation. That's not true. Salvation is a free gift. It doesn't cost you anything. It costs Christ everything as he gave his life on the cross and bore our sins. And once I trust in Christ, I pass from death to life and I am born again. But it cost Jesus everything when he bore your sins on the cross. But to be a growing disciple, that's a different matter. There is a cost involved. Sometimes it's the ultimate cost involved. But there's a price to pay. And every thinking person, when he hears words that we're going to be looking at this morning, has to weigh them and say, am I willing? Am I willing to take up my cross and to be a growing disciple and follow Christ? I really do think that John 21 is the greatest 
chapter ever written on discipleship. I really feel that if every Christian could integrate these five principles into their daily living, they would be a powerful witness on the shepherd and a growing disciple to the glory of our great God. There are five principles in chapter 21. Two weeks ago, the dependence of a disciple must be cast on Christ. That's true in everything. I depend on Christ. It's true in evangelism. I depend on Christ alone. Then he takes it a step further. And we saw that last week in verses 15 to 17, the second principle. The devotion of a disciple must be centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we come to the third one, which is the destiny of a disciple is controlled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words that Jesus speaks in John 21, 18 to 19. Now, one of the things you need to keep in mind is we're going week by week, and there's a week's separation, seven days between one message to the next. But in John 21, it's just one sitting. It all takes place at one time as our Lord Jesus Christ is addressing his disciples. Verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. Now for the apostle Peter, following Jesus would involve more than just the hook and the crook. It's going to ultimately bring pain to him. It's going to bring suffering. And ultimately, it's going to bring martyrdom. No one who is in their right mind desires to suffer. No one. But most people across the globe, even as you saw this morning, recognize that suffering is normal in this fallen world in which we live. The idea that people have the right to a secure, a healthy life is an attitude that is unfortunately bled over to the church. The extreme example of this is seen on radio, on television, and in many writings by so-called Christian believers. We leave that up to the Lord to know their heart. It's called the prosperity gospel. And it goes something like this. It is God's will for you to experience good health and wealth and that you will have happiness in your life. That's the prosperity gospel. And people like to hear that. And even among more biblically orthodox Christians, there's an unspoken idea that somehow God will promise to protect them from suffering. How many times have we heard well-meaning preachers, many of whom are evangelical, they preach a message and say something like, the safest place to be is in the will of God. You've heard it if you've listened at all. That's not only wrong, it's against the Bible. The will of God is not necessarily a safe place. It's the best place, 
It's where we want to walk and fulfill God's purpose for our life, but it's not necessarily a safe place. It can be a very unsafe place in the will of God. So today we see that our own country has become increasingly post-Christian, and even there's a little bit of a taint of persecution that might be on the horizon. If you would go into the Islamic world, into the Hindu or communist parts of the world like we visited this morning, being a follower of Jesus means at best losing your job and being cast out from your family whom you love. But worst of all, it involves imprisonment, beating, and death. Did you notice that one of them on the screen says, pray that we, our suffering, will be alleviated. Not one of them said that. In fact, they said the opposite. What they prayed for, please pray that God gives us grace and courage to be faithful, even unto death. These things are being experienced all around the world by our brothers and sisters. 340 million living under hard persecution. One out of eight in the world suffering greatly. It seems to me that people who have been given a realistic sense of what the Bible teaches about this and then they follow Jesus and have counted the cost will make much steadier disciples. If I were still at the college and seminary, I think I'd prepare these young training pastors to be, to start preparing their flock for what might be a hard times ahead. Maybe not for you or me, but things are moving fast. Our children, our grandchildren, who knows what awaits them. But let's remember what Jesus predicted for his followers, and you can see it on the screen. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, literally reject his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates or rejects his self-willed life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross. That's death. That's death. Let him take up his cross and follow me. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. James Calvert went out years ago with a team to the Fiji Islands. The Fiji Islands were totally cannibalistic and had not a Christian witness. And when they got to arriving on shore, the captain of the ship says, if you go there among these cannibal savages, you will lose your life, sir, and those who are going with you. Calvert immediately responded to the captain. He said, we died before we came. That's what you read earlier. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me. I died before we came. 
John 21 teaches us many wonderful truths, and the one before us this morning is the destiny of a disciple is controlled by Christ. Now, if you were with us last week, you saw the Lord Jesus eyeball to eyeball with Simon Peter. Peter needs to be publicly restored to leadership if he is going to be a leader of the disciples because publicly he denied the Lord three times. I do not know him. He swore and he cursed three times. Now the seven disciples are there gathered as they were three and a half years ago when Jesus first called him. Now Peter's looking eyeball to eyeball at Simon. Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Do you love me? Simon, do you even like me? You know all things, Lord. You know I love you. Feed my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. Tend my sheep. And so Jesus is still looking at Simon Peter. And in the very next breath, after he tells him to feed my sheep, he looks at him and he, just him and Peter now talking eyeball to eyeball, Verily, verily, I say to you, someday you're going to be old. Now, Peter is going to hear from the lips of our loving Lord Jesus about what his destiny is that Christ controls. We would, might use the word death even because that's what it's talking about here. And it's applicable for us as well. Notice, first of all, what I call his appointment with death. His appointment with death. Those are in the little words, but when thou shalt be old. Isn't that a powerful statement? You know, I see children here today. And I've got little grandsons and a great-grandson. I cannot look at one of those little boys as much as I'd like. I cannot look at one of them and say, someday you're going to be an old man. I don't know what tomorrow holds. That's why James says, don't boast of tomorrow, for you know not what a day brings forth. In my experience as a pastor, I've buried babies. Two-year-olds, four-year-olds, six-year-olds, teenagers. I remember every one of them. Grieving parents, grandparents. Couldn't say to one of them that you're going to be an old person someday. I guess if we had our druthers, you say, how do you want to die? How do you want to end life? Most of you would probably say of old age. I can tell you one thing. I don't know how your life's going to end, but I'll tell you this. You've got an appointment with death, and you will not miss it. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. What a, what a word. That's why we want to get involved in evangelism. I'm going to die in answer to the Lord someday. So are you. But think of the many who don't know Christ. They're not ready to face the judgment. Forever they'll be lost. Forever. No second chance. No hope. An eternal destiny without the presence of God in a place called hell. The point is that except for the generation of believers who are alive at that time that we refer to as the rapture of the church, 
Every son and daughter of Adam will experience death. Our destiny is controlled by Christ. We have that appointment. Notice the second thing he says to Peter. Not only about his appointment with death, but his avenue of death. Now Jesus tells Peter, when you were younger, you did your own thing. You walked where you wanted to go. You got up. You dressed yourself. You said, I'm going to do this today. I'm a strong-willed, self-willed man. That was Simon Peter. And God completely broke that spirit in him. For he became a surrendered vessel. Said, not my will, but your will be done. And so he looks at Peter and says, you're going to stretch forth your hands when you're an old man. Peter at this time might have been in his 20s. But he says, someday you're going to be an old man. And when you do, you're going to stretch forth your hands. And Peter, another person is going to carry you and take you where you don't want to go. You're going to say, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. Just like I said in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this he told Simon Peter. That's a statement back in the first century used by Greek writers to speak of crucifixion. It's pretty graphic. You'll, another will stretch forth your hands. Jesus is predicting the avenue of Peter's death. You say, well, what makes you so sure about that? Well, look at verse 19. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Now, the Bible doesn't record Peter's death. In fact, out of all the apostles, of whom we know 11 suffered martyrdom, only one death is mentioned, and that's the death of the apostle James in the book of Acts, chapter 12, who was killed by the sword of Caesar. But there lived a historian by the name of Eusebius, and if we just use about 300 A.D. as the time when Eusebius lived, 260 to 340. As you can see, it was only a couple hundred years after John wrote this, this gospel here. And in his third volume of ecclesiastical history, he opens the veil in Peter's life as he died. Listen to his words. It was the year 61 AD under the reign of Nero when Peter came to the place of crucifixion. He said, I am not worthy to be crucified as my Lord. And he requested to be crucified upside down, feet upwards, head downwards. And he was. He was led where he did not want to go. Where it was against his will. His arms were stretched forth. But as he reflected on the death of his Lord, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in that same manner. I ask you to put me head first. History says that's reliable. It's a moving picture, isn't it? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you even like me? Lord, you know all things. And this Next word of Jesus at the end of verse 19 is going to be, follow me, and we'll see that next week. And following the Lord Jesus Christ, it was a following motivated by love for Christ unto death. The martyr spirit is a marvelous thing to behold. 
As you listen to the testimonies of martyrs over 2,000 years of Christianity, you see God's abundant mercy, his grace, and his presence that gives them the courage needed. When we began this series, we started in verses 1 to 14, and we answered one of five questions that we wouldn't know the answer to if we didn't have John 21. And the question was simply this. Now that Jesus Christ has fulfilled his ministry on earth, and he's been crucified and resurrected, soon will be ascended at the right hand of the Father, so he's going to leave us behind, and he's going to go to the right hand of the Father. Will he still care for us like he did his disciples when he walked on earth with them? And as we saw in John 21, Jesus is providing for them. Jesus is with them. Jesus is caring for them. Jesus even performed a miracle for them. And that was his way of saying what he promised his apostles when he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The Lord is with us. Every day as we move about, the Lord is with me. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. He talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. What class? He lives within my heart. That's the experience every one of us should be appropriating. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He walks next to us. As the shepherd, he walks before us. He walks behind us. He's everywhere. He's with me. He's with you. He promised Peter, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That was the most meaningful verse to David Livingston. When he pioneered the interior of Africa in very dark, dark places and was so discouraged, and Livingston would write in his diary, it was Jesus Christ and I walking together. Is that the reality for you? My Savior, my Lord, my friend, he's right with me. Was it fever or was it delirium? Samuel Rutherford was in prison suffering for his faith. And he wrote to a friend from prison, Jesus Christ came into my cell last night, and so every stone flashed like a ruby. Was he delirious? Was he losing his mind? Or was the Lord really with him? I think we know the answer. Jesus promised his abiding presence to Peter, so it is with all who follow in his steps. Pain is pain not pleasure, and only a higher and a deeper love brings you to embrace it when you could deny it and avoid it by denying Christ. The martyr spirit is a marvelous thing to behold. The apostle John who wrote this book he discipled a young man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp 
was possibly the pastor of the church at Smyrna because that's where we know he served. He was the bishop of Smyrna. That was the second church in the seven churches of Asia Minor. Jesus wrote each one of them a personal letter, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, etc. And Jesus wrote this letter right about the same time in the book of Revelation that we're reading John 21. We hope to visit those sites in October. Listen to Jesus' words to Smyrna in Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. About 50 years after Jesus wrote those words, a very aged pastor and bishop, such a godly great man, Polycarp, was faithful unto death. Just before he was burned at the stake by an angry mob, the Roman proconsul took pity on this elderly man. You saw him as a gentle and a good man. And he simply whispered to Polycarp, just say Caesar is Lord. You don't have to say it loud. Caesar is Lord. Here, take just a pinch of this incense. Just offer a pinch. That's all. At the statue of Caesar. And you go back to your family and to your flock. They recorded Polycarp's response. 86 years I have served Christ, and he never did me any wrong. So how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Steadfast in his stand for Christ, he would not compromise. He was burned alive at the stake. They say... I don't know if it's reliable. If there was a miracle that took place that the fire would not consume him. I don't doubt that at all. I just don't know it. And then the soldier put a sword into his heart, and that's how he died. The martyr spirit is a marvelous thing to behold. Fifty years after Polycarp's martyrdom, there was another great church leader. Tertullian was his name. He was the leader of the church in North Africa. He wrote a letter to the emperor at the time of Rome. And he wrote a sentence that has been passed down all through the years that we even saw witnessing this morning on that video. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Look wherever there's been martyrdom. If you've never as a Christian read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, you must. It'll give you appreciation for what people endured to pass us down this book and their faithfulness to Christ. Wherever there's martyrdom and persecution, there is an expansive growth of the church. It's happening even today. And that's why those leaders, you heard them yourself, said, do not pray for our comfort. Pray for God's grace that we'll be faithful. This last week I was in touch with a dear friend, Sangbach David Kim. When I served at Washington Bible College and Capital Bible Seminary a little over 30 years ago, 
Sangbach was our chairman of our pastoral theology department. Wish I could tell you his whole story. It's very moving and touching. His parents got him across the North Korea border uh, into South Korea after World War II and just before the Korean War broke out. David served his first 25 years in Korea, second 25 years in the United States, and then he's been back in Korea now for quite a few years. If you visited any church or Christian in South Korea today, they would know who Sangbok David Kim is. I think he's one of the greatest Christians in the history of Christendom. I'll never forget when he invited me to go with him in 1989 for about 10 days. We had ministry and we divided up along the way and came back, but he arranged the whole trip, speaking in universities and seminaries and churches and small group meetings and house meetings. I remember the one day when we went to the 38th parallel and you're standing there and you're looking down over and you see North Korea and all the persecution taking place with our family. You see the Korean guards and the North Korean guards, the DMZ. And then I started hearing all the testimonies of live eyewitnesses to much of the suffering that was taking place over in Korea. The young brown-eyed girl looked up at her mother. What would her mom decide? Earlier that morning, the young girl's mother, their pastor, the little girl and 26 members of the church in Gokson were bound and taken before a screaming crowd of communists. One of the guards ordered the pastor and the other Christians, deny Christ or you will die. The words chilled the little girl and the words chilled her mom. Just imagine some of you that have a little daughter or a granddaughter. And you're standing out there in this hostile environment. She's gripping your hand. Deny Christ. And the mother's thinking to herself, how in the world can I deny him when I know him as my Savior and Lord? All the adults quietly refused. And the communists Guards shouted at them, If you do not deny Christ, we will hang your children. The little girl looked at her mom. She gripped her hand just a little more tightly. She knew how much her mom loved her. What would her mom say and do? What would you do? The mom leaned down and she whispered in her little girl's ear with confidence and peace. She whispered, today, my love, I will see you in heaven. All the children were hanged. So the remaining believers, the parents, were brought out to a pavement. They were told to lie face down. And once again, they were given one last chance. Renounce Christ, deny him, and you will live. But like that song we often sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. And when you allow your own children to be hanged, that decision is already made. 
And they all laid down on their face. Then they brought the bulldozer in to run over them and crush them each to death. And then it started, the chorus. They started singing. Started at one end and came all the way to the end. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. And suddenly it all died out. The martyr spirit is a marvelous thing to behold. The last two years, Miro and I have developed a very close friendship with a dear couple, Ashraf and Nina Ibrahim. They're from Egypt. You'll meet them, Lord willing, at our missions conference in October 2023, where we're going to have a conference dedicated to reaching the Islamic world with the gospel overseas as well as at home. Asherif was born in Menia, Egypt. If you see it on your map, you'll see Alexandria up here, Cairo, then Menia is down here. They call down here Upper Egypt, even though it's lower on the map. And that's where the Egyptian jihad is. is. We have chaplains right there in Menia. Asherif knows them. Asherif was born there. He's over there right now. He's been there now. He's, in, he's closing out his third week. I can't wait to talk to him. One of his ministries is not only to what they call the garbage people, but it's to the families of the nine martyrs. And many of you saw this very picture on the news, the newspapers a few years ago. It was all over the world. They put the orange jump shoots on the, on the Christians. They made them kneel down. And then an ISIS terrorist, they'd have one behind each, each Egyptian Christian with a machete. And they would go to the first person, the second person, will you deny Christ, the captain of the guard would ask. One by one, they would not. And one by one, they were decapitated, absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. The martyr spirit is a marvelous thing to behold. All the apostles suffered great persecution and maybe except for John the Apostle himself, they all suffered martyrdom. So Peter, after he confesses his love for Christ, Jesus then takes even that limited love that isn't fully developed and matured. And he says, get about the, sheeping, the shepherding business. And immediately upon that confession, he's then told, Someday you're going to be an old man and you will die a violent death as a martyr. How would that news affect you? To know that you're going to die someday a painful, torturous death as a martyr. I think we see it brought assurance to Peter, and that's why I call the third point is assurance from death. Because in our context, Jesus had spoken to Peter about his life and ministry and now all of a sudden he's talking about his death. And our first reaction might be, well, man, that's hard news. That's bad news to receive. I don't think it was bad news. I think it was welcome news. Peter had just denied the Lord three times. He was overtaken in his repentance and grief and tears. But when you fail the Lord, and who here hasn't? 
When you fail the Lord, then you wonder, will I stand true the next time that same temptation comes my way? Or will I fail again? And for Peter to hear that he was going to be faithful unto death, I think just a hope surged in his heart and life. And it brought him great comfort to know that indeed, unlike the first time when he said, I'm ready to go with you to prison, Luke 22, and to death, Lord, that didn't work out so good. But it's going to work out the second time. His heart is assured, his hope is soaring. He will be faithful unto death. And it gave Peter great assurance. The martyr spirit is a marvelous thing to behold. So let's close it out with his accomplishment at death because this comes right in the same sense. In verse 19, it says that Peter's death would glorify God. Why? Because any death of a believer who dies in the will of God is a death which glorifies God. Please keep in mind, you've got an appointment He knows the avenue. He knows how you're going to die. And the only thing that we ought to want and desire from our heart is that our death would glorify God. That's all that matters. That's a hard word. I talked to someone before this service who's lost a son and a brother. It sounds like a hard word. It's not a hard word. It's a true word that in our death, if we glorify God, we got all eternity ahead, and our, the death of a saint is coronation day. I think sometimes our problem is we just get our feet dug so deeply in this world, and it becomes almost controlling us. You're a born-again child of God. You are called to a life of total commitment to the Lordship of Christ. His will for your life is the only thing that matters. Everything else is secondary. Will you do his will? Will you follow him as your Lord and Master? As a disciple of Christ, your dependence is cast upon Christ. Your devotion must be focused on Christ. And your destiny is controlled by Christ. So if you've never made that decision, some of you who have been around here long enough know that I love to use a little card that I've been using for close to 50 years. God's will for your life, whatever, whenever, wherever. Lord, today I declare you as my Lord and Master. You sign that card, you dated April 25th, 2021. Get somebody else to witness it, then you tuck it in your Bible. And every time you open your Bible for your devotions, there's that card. It's a reminder. You dug a hole in the ground. You put a fence stake there. You drove a stake in the ground. Totally, Lord. If you're here and you've never been born again, it won't cost you a thing. It costs Christ everything trust in Christ, receive the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're going to close the message. And by the way, these cards here, I put a whole bunch out at the Welcome Center. 
if you would like one of those cards, no one's going to press you. You're a badger. You but just you'll see them out there. Just pick it up and sign your name. Get somebody to witness it, date it, put it in your Bible. We're going to close the message with another short video about Karen Watson, who viewed the martyr's death as one for his glory that then becomes our reward. The martyr's spirit is a wonderful thing to behold. And by the way, does Jesus really care? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief and yours. When the days are weary, the nights get so doggone dreary, I know my Savior cares.